If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've ever wondered if you have committed the unpardonable sin or if you're wondering if it's possible for you to, I've got some good news. You can't and you are very fine. However, I hope you'll stick around till the end of the episode to find out why that's the case. Hey everybody, my name is Ray Burns and I want to encourage Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. When it comes to the question of the unpardonable sin, what we are ultimately asking is, can we reach an end to God's forgiveness? If we have been covered by the blood of Christ, is there something that we can do to nullify that, cancel it, weaken it? Is there anything that we can do that is so horrible, so horrendous in God's eyes that Jesus Christ just couldn't possibly pay for it on the cross? Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're not sure what the unpardonable sin is, or you're not sure what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. So I want to read the passage that we're talking about and then kind of get into what this cannot possibly mean, what it might mean, and what I personally believe it means. Now, if you're listening to that and thinking, wow, that sounds really ambiguous and not very concrete, and that's kind of true, and as you'll find out, there's a good reason why that I think that's the case and why it means we don't need to stress out about Christians committing the unpardonable sin. So this idea comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, which say, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So... These words of Christ have given a lot of sleepless nights to believers in the past. They don't fully know what the blasphemy against the Spirit necessarily is, but they know that it's something that is so unforgivable that Jesus Christ seems incapable of paying for it. And what we need to really realize is that this isn't very descriptive on its own. You know, people will read this and they will just concoct all kinds of beliefs and theologies based on this, but it's not terribly clear. And we should really ask ourselves, if there is something out there that we today as followers of Christ can do to nullify the grace of God in our lives and granting us salvation through Jesus Christ, we would kind of hope that God would be maybe a little more clear about it, that Christ would be a little more descriptive in his explanation, or at the very least that the gospel writer Mark would have at least been like, hey, here's what he means, make sure you don't do this. And the fact that he doesn't is very telling on how overblown or misconstrued we can get when it comes to this passage. So first, what I want to do is look at what blasphemy of the Spirit can't possibly mean. And that is that it's not about sinning so much that we just cancel out our salvation. So I want to start with reading Romans 7.15, which says, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So when we give in to our sinful desires, whether it's you know, a first time or a rare thing, or it's one of those sins that we really struggle with, maybe for years on end. Whenever we do it, we have guilt and regret about it. We know the right thing to do. We know not to visit that website. We know not to yell at our kids, to lie, to steal, whatever. We know not to do it, but we do it. And over time, that guilt and that feeling of constant failure and not living up to what God has for us and that feeling of not having victory over the sin that we are so tired of and that we've prayed about, it gets kind of overwhelming. And to a degree, it almost gets tiring because 
we don't want to do it, but we, for some reason, maybe we feel like we are victims and we can't help ourselves. Maybe we, you know, just have things going on in our lives that we just make decision after decision, which just leads us to inevitably making that one decision and giving into that sin again, whatever it is, we know what it means to just be torn up about a sin in our lives. And so then when we have that, and especially if we read this passage in Mark about the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the spirit, and we read that within proximity of us already having these feelings of guilt about still being stuck in this sin or, you know, relapsing into it, then what that ends up doing is that really shines a darkness or a light in the darkness in our lives. And it makes us kind of, you know, shudder and realize, oh no, you know, is, is this thing that I'm, you know, kind of doing because it feels good in the moment, is this going to have an eternal consequence? Is this going to remove my salvation and, and the seal of the Holy Spirit on me so that, you know, when I stand before God, he's going to say, oh, you're your sins haven't been paid for. You, Your name's been erased from the Lamb's Book of Life. That seems to be a trend that a lot of people have. Um, you know, over the years, I've heard a surprising number of pastors say that when it comes to this verse, they get a lot of calls from Christians, sometimes in tears, because they think that, you know, you know, giving into alcohol or drugs or, you know, not reading their Bible every day or, I mean, there, there's a range of things that people feel guilty and broken up about. And they think that, you know, this last time was just that one time too many, that it that it broke the camel's back, so to speak, and that they've committed the unpardonable sin because they are, they are you know, fighting the Holy Spirit in their lives and they are rejecting and refusing his, his work in their lives. And so they think that this is it, that they've just gone too far. It's just been one step too many. There's been one too many sins that God can't forgive. But what we need to realize is that when we try to apply that kind of mentality to this verse or just in general to the the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then what we end up doing is saying that there was something that Christ's death was not enough to cover. It's to believe that the sin in the life of a believer can outdo God's mercy and his forgiveness through Jesus Christ on the cross. And ultimately, what we say is that, you know, Jesus Christ's death, his, his living the perfect life, his being sacrificed and taking God's wrath for our sin, for those who will ask him to forgive them, it was almost enough. It was, it was just this close to being enough to completely pay the price for our sins and to redeem us and to give us eternal life. But let's look at what Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 14 has to say about that kind of thinking, that Christ's death wasn't enough to cover all sin. It says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, meaning Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for all sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, we don't want to admit that we think like this sometime, that's, that we can somehow outdo the power of Christ's sacrifice for his people. But that is what our inevitable conclusion is if we think that we can do anything to lose our salvation or to outdo God's mercy. But here it's very clear that Christ's death was a once-for-all payment for our sins, that if his forgiveness has been applied to us, it is ours forever. We don't have to worry about him paying for most of our sin and us having to do, you know, 
something to earn it more or, you know, it being kind of a, a limited thing like a gift card where we can outspend how much forgiveness or grace we have. You know, Christ's death was a once for all payment. You know, Romans 5.20 talks about how where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to remove everything that we've done. You know, no matter how bad we are, whether it was before our conversion or if for whatever reason we are fighting the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we are rejecting the victory that Christ gives us over sin and instead turning to idolatry and turning to the world, turning to our own beliefs and emotions and desires for our happiness and our satisfaction. Christ's death was enough to cover all of that, to pay for all of that. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. I mean, consider Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? You know, Paul here talks about, you know, kind of all these outside influences, but the, the answer here, you know, the unspoken answer is that no one can separate us from the love of Christ. And that includes you. You cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Ray cannot separate Ray from the love of Christ. Insert your name. Pause the podcast and scream it at the top of your lungs. You can't do anything to separate yourself from the love of Christ. And, you know, as Christians, that should cause us to love and worship God even more because he doesn't demand perfection. He doesn't demand performance. He just wants our faithfulness. He wants us to recognize what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He wants us to understand how great and endless his mercy and love and grace are and then just live like people who believe that that's true. You know, so this this idea of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't about us just doing a thing. You know, it's not even... Uh, you know, years ago, um, there was a thing on YouTube or social media called the Blasphemy Challenge, where people would record themselves, they would have their kids record themselves, and they would say, you know, my name is so-and-so, and I am committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And be- because people, you know, sinners doing how sinners do, did not understand what this possibly meant, but they just wanted to be so defiant towards God or just to take part in a, a challenge to be hip and cool and anti-religion, whatever, you know, whatever their motivations were, they thought that they were committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by literally saying, I am blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And even that, even if one of those people were someday to realize the weight of their sin before God and their need for Jesus Christ to pay that penalty because they cannot possibly pay it, even those people who literally are on record for all time, because once it's on the internet, it's there forever. Even those people can have forgiveness for what they thought was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because nothing we can do can outmatch God's love and mercy that he gives us through Jesus Christ. Now, that being said, I want to somewhat briefly talk about the kind of more popular interpretation of this. And what I'm going to say is true but not true of this passage is what I is what I'm going to kind of clarify it as. So in a nutshell, what people would say is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is just dying in unbelief. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really plan this when I was kind of planning out um, my episode content. But two weeks ago, I talked about what happens to those who never hear the gospel. And I kind of talked about, um, you know, just the big part of what it means to die with our sins unforgiven. And, and um, the inevitable end of where those people go. And so, you know, I would encourage you, if you're a little more curious, to go listen to that. But ultimately, um, you know, we know that if someone dies without their sins being forgiven, you know, they, they understood what 
right and wrong are, whether they understand the gospel or not. Uh, you know, even those who've never heard about God or Jesus Christ have their own consciences that they still fight against and betray and don't obey. So we know that those who die in unbelief are sent to hell. And then as Revelation says, uh, you know, hell and everyone in it is thrown into the lake of fire. So there are those who would say, oh, well, you know, to, to try to figure this passage out, oh, well, you know, clearly blasphemy against the Holy Spirit logically has to be dying in unbelief. And, you know, if you want to kind of, uh, you know, read up on this a little more and maybe study it out for yourself, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which just talks about the wrath of God being revealed against the, the deeds of men on earth and that no one is without excuse. And, you know, what I would just say to this is that, yes, everyone who is currently in hell or who will spend eternity in the lake of fire, the one thing they're all going to have in common is that they died as unrepentant sinners. They are paying the penalty that, you know, they're, they're living out their judgment for the crimes that they've committed for breaking God's law. They will all have that in common, just like everyone who gets to have an eternal life in a, you know, perfect new earth is going to have one thing in common, and that is that they had no sin to pay for. They had no guilt on themselves in standing before God. And again, I just, I, I want to point out, I do agree with that sentiment in general. You know, I do believe that, you know, what Christ says in John six thirty seven that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. In other words, if, you know, under, under this interpretation, if you are saved and redeemed and made righteous by the blood of Christ, then you can't commit sin against the Holy Spirit, because under this idea, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is simply unbelief. And as followers of Christ, he says that, you know, those who God gives him are, are definitely going to come to him, and those who come to him are there forever. They are eternally secure. They are, you know, they are kept by Christ, again, because no one can separate us from the love of Christ, including us. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think that if we look at kind of the bigger context here, that while that idea, that sentiment is biblical, I don't think that it applies to what we're reading when it comes to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So having kind of laid that groundwork of what it definitely isn't, what it is popularly believed to be, but what I, I just don't think we're going to get there. And, and as we'll see, um, you know, I think there's a better way to understand it. Uh, let's just look at what basically was really going on in the bigger context of this verse. Because uh, if you remember, you know, months ago, episodes ago, one of the very first episodes I did was how to read and understand the Bible. And ultimately, it just boils down to context. Don't just read a single verse. Don't just read two or three verses, but read everything and keep asking the question, why? Why is this written? Why is this being said? Why should I care? You know, what does this mean for our lives? And that's just really what we're going to finish this episode up doing is just saying, why did Jesus say this? Why did he accuse someone of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Who's he talking to? What were they doing? And what does that mean for us today, if anything? So if we were just to be sitting down and reading the book of Mark and we weren't paying attention to verses or chapter numbers, because like I said in my episode about you know, owning a Bible without verse numbers. You know, the Bible wasn't written with these little numbers there where all these individual thoughts were broken up. It was written just like, you know, I'm speaking to you now as one continuous flow of thoughts. Or, you know, in the case of the Gospels, you know, kind of a narrative showing the life of Christ. And so, you know, Jesus didn't just walk out of a tent one day, say, whoever 
blasphemes the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, and then went back in and took a nap. I mean, that's that's not what happened here. You know, Christ is saying something built on the context of what's happening around him. And what's especially interesting about this is that, you know, a lot of times we want to stop when it says, you know, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. And we mentally want to put a period there because that ends the, the the verse number 29. You know, we read number 28, it says this. We read 29, it says this. And we're like, whoa, hold up now. There's something I cannot be forgiven of. There is an eternal sin that Christ can't pay for. And so we stop there, but we need to realize there's not actually a period there. And that that sentence, that thought continues on. And so if we read just a little bit of the context here, um, starting at the end of verse 29 and then just going straight into verse 30, it says, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, quote, he has an unclean spirit. So here, Christ is saying this, and, and Mark points out, as a reaction to what other people were saying about him. And in this case, it's the Pharisees. So the Pharisees said, he has an unclean spirit, to which Christ was saying, look, God will forgive all blasphemies, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven. You won't be forgiven because it's an eternal sin. So here, Christ is condemning their words, but also the hearts behind them, because whatever it is that was leading them to say he has an unclean spirit and why they were doing that was something that somehow Christ told them is unforgivable. It, it can't be covered. So... Why then? Again, keep asking the question, why? Why did they say this? What was the bigger picture? Why were they saying that Christ had an unclean spirit? And why was that accusation so much worse than any other kind of blasphemy? You know, because we think, you know, blasphemy is just, you know, using God's name as a swear word or something like that. But I mean, blasphemy is really just taking God's name and saying what he doesn't say. It's it's being careless. It's being frivolous. It's not having proper reverence for God's name. That is kind of the bigger context of what blasphemy is. And so when we have blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we are you know, saying things about the Holy Spirit and not having reverence for him. So let's, you know, we, we zoomed out just a little bit in looking at verse 30, uh, but now let's, you know, just kind of keep, keep zooming out, keep, you know, pulling away from just these particular verses. And this is going to be a bit of a longer read. So as always, if you're not driving, I would encourage you to uh, take out your Bible. I am, and just, you know, follow along with me. But if you're driving, if you're at work and you can't be, you know, distracted, um, just try to, to focus as I read. So Mark chapter three, verses 22 to 30 says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? This is Christ speaking. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will never be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder the house. Truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, again, if you were, if we zoom this out even more, and for, you know, sake of time, again, encourage you, just 
go read Mark chapter three. But here, Christ was performing miracles. And in this particular case, he was showing his authority over darkness by casting out demons from demon possessed people. Now, kind of the bigger context here, historically speaking, is that, you know, people who knew these people who had been demon possessed and with just, you know, one act of this guy named Jesus Christ coming in or Jesus of Nazareth, I should say, coming in and, you know, from one moment to the next, these people had gone from madness and, you know, self-harm and isolation to being sane and of sound mind. Even if you didn't believe anything else this guy was saying, you had to admit there was something going on here. You couldn't just say, oh, no, it's a parlor trick. Oh, he's just making it up. Oh, it was, you know, the person was a plant or whatever. People saw that, that Jesus was doing something here. There was something going on. And so, um, you know, everyone seeing it realized it, and that includes the Pharisees. The Pharisees were at a point where they couldn't just hand wave it away and explain it away. They had to say, yeah, this guy is doing something. But as we know about the Pharisees, you know, these religious leaders of the day who were so far blown from God's will and were just kind of using the Bible as a rules manual to beat people down and puff themselves up, they couldn't possibly acknowledge that this carpenter's son, this, you know, this rabble rouser, this troublemaker, they couldn't possibly say that he was doing these things because he was from God. So they had something they had to explain and they had to explain it in a way that still let them comfortably hold to their traditions. And if we're honest, to keep holding on to their power. So what do you do when someone stands in front of you and demonstrates that they have this supernatural power to remove demonic oppression from this man or woman who had been just absolutely out of their mind, you know, for months or years before this. Well, as we see, their only option was to basically say, hey, yeah, he's he's casting out demons, but he's not on our team. He's playing for the other team. He's on the side of Satan and using the power of, you know, what they called Beelzebub or the or the, you know, prince of demons to do these things. You know, so they, they saw, they knew that the things he was doing could only be done supernaturally, that there was no necessarily naturalistic explanation for it. There was nothing they could do to discount him in terms of, you know, discrediting him. So they had to come at it another way and cast doubt upon what he was doing by saying that he was, he was casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. So they refused to believe the truth of who Jesus Christ was and what he was saying and how he was demonstrating his words. Because if you remember, um, you know, even, you know, even the, the apostles, you know, they demonstrated their authority by showing that God was on their side because God would work supernaturally through them as they were taking the gospel throughout the whole world. And even Old Testament prophets, we see that uh, there was this expectation that a prophet, you know, before we believe what a prophet says, they need to prove themselves to truly be from God. And, you know, in the case of prophets, usually that was being able to speak kind of shorter term or less important prophecies and saying, hey, look, what I said came true. So you need to listen about this bigger thing, and this bigger message that I have from God. So that's, you know, ultimately what Christ was demonstrating here is that he had power from God. He had authority over demons. He wasn't just doing cool magic tricks, but he was actually removing them, these demons, in a way that even the Pharisees couldn't. But they didn't want to believe that truth. They wanted to fight against what they were clearly seeing so much that they would say anything if it let them keep doing what they were doing, if it let them live the life that they wanted to live and not compromise their beliefs and their understanding. And so they, as, as Christ says, they very illogically said that Satan is casting out Satan. Now, why this matters? Because you would think, oh, well, 
doesn't that make sense? I mean, why wouldn't Satan, uh, you know, demonically oppress someone and then, you know, send one of his people to, re- you know, quote unquote, remove that demon and, and heal this person and just have that demon kind of go somewhere else. And that is a whole other thing. But th- the one minute explanation is that when demons were removed, they didn't really come back. There was a finality to being having the the this, you know, supernatural spirit removed from a human host. And so effectively what Christ is saying is it is completely ludicrous to say that Satan is coming here and removing Satan's power, you know, and his agents and, and his his followers from the earth. The fact that you would even say that shows just how depraved, just how desperate you are not to accept the truth of God and what I am saying and the words of God that I am speaking to you. And so ultimately what the Pharisees resorted to is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which in the bigger context the only thing that seems to make sense is that this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was saying that the the work of God in Jesus Christ was so evident to these people, but they were dead set on rejecting and refusing to believe what it was that they said the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in you is Satan. It is darkness. It is evil. It is not from God. We refuse to believe that it's from God. And so Christ I think here is ultimately saying that you are so hardened in your hearts that the truth that is plainly evident to you, you would dare go against what you know is true, what you know is logical and and biblically correct. You would go against that just because you don't want to see the truth. And he's saying that for these people, these particular people standing there with him in that moment, seeing him cast out demons and free people from from demonic oppression. He is saying for you particular individuals, there is no forgiveness for how you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I believe Christ means when he talks about the unpardonable sin, the one sin that cannot be forgiven. And unless we develop time travel technology and we decide to go back to when Christ was casting out demons and we learn to speak their language and join in the Pharisees saying that your power is coming from Satan and I refuse to believe what you're saying, then I don't think anyone today is capable of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to give uh, just kind of a final word and a final thought and a little bit of comfort. So, yes, Romans 1 is still clear that those who refuse to acknowledge God for who he is and ask Jesus Christ to save them are still under God's wrath for their sin that still needs to be punished for their broken laws that justice demands be be paid for. And so, like I said, the kind of popular explanation of this verse is still true in that we as followers of Christ, those who have been redeemed, don't need to worry about that being held over our heads. But I also want us to just remember that we as followers of Christ don't hate sin because we're scared that it's going to remove something we want. We don't want to stop sinning because we don't want to lose our salvation. We love God. We love his holiness. We love his righteousness. We love his love and we love his justice. We want to love everything that he loves and we want to hate everything that he hates. And if we know that he hates sin, then we want to hate it too. And that is our motivation for killing sin in our lives, for wanting to have victory through Jesus Christ, who has already set us free from the bondage of sin so that we can choose righteousness. And so, you know, if you're a Christian and, you know, you came into this episode and you were terrified that maybe you had, you know, some, at some point in your life committed the unpardonable sin, or you sit there sometime in the future and you are just, you know, overwhelmed with dread and fear and disgust at that sin in your life, that's not bad. 
that doesn't mean that you should you know, follow it to the conclusion that you are going to lose your salvation because we need to look at the entirety of Scripture to understand that. But don't just find comfort in saying, oh, my sin's paid for, I'm good to go. I don't need to feel bad about myself because our guilt is a good thing. Our guilt is a gift from God. It's, it's an evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our life as he is convicting us of sin and drawing us towards righteousness. So as we're weighing, you know, the reality of sin in our own lives and we're trying to understand, you know, how does God's justice and love and all that interact with this, just remember that, you know, God's goodness and his holiness doesn't just extend to a hatred of sin, but it also extends to his limitless grace and mercy that he gives to us freely. And so if you take nothing else from this, if you are someone who is, you know, needing comfort and is just overwhelmed with the reality of your sin, just remember that as those who have been eternally purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our sin and our sinful choices cannot possibly outperform God's goodness and love for his people through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. If you'd like to support this ministry, there are three ways you can do that. First, I always ask for prayer, both for myself and Onward in the Faith in general. Second, you can support it through outreach by sharing this episode or the ministry itself with others that you think might be encouraged or challenged by uh, the things that I'm doing. And finally, you can support it through donations by visiting patreon.com slash onward in the faith or by visiting the links down in the show notes. I hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.